0: Hey there, folks. It's Aaron Morgenstein from FlexMedStaff.com. In this podcast, Corinne and I interview Dr. George Davis. He's an ER physician that has a lot to say about the healthcare industry and how it is changing. We also speak to him about changing or altering his career to improve a work-life balance. He's worked for private management companies, and now, as an independent contractor, he's really enjoying the life that he would like to live. Let's learn more and hear from Dr. George Davis. Enjoy. I'm excited to be here today on this podcast. We're interviewing Dr. George Davis. He's an emergency medicine physician down in Texas. He's had a 20-year career and he's been through it all. He's worked for private management companies. He's now an independent contractor. He does a little locums. He truly has seeked out work-life balance and he knows a lot about healthcare. I'm excited (laughs) to uh, interview him and speak with him today. How are you doing?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me on.
0: So let's uh, introduce you for the audience here. Tell us about yourself and how did you get to this point?
1: All right. Uh, Dr. George Davis, board certified emergency medicine. Uh, I did my initial training for emergency medicine in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. I was a chief resident the last year of my program. And then I came back to Texas. You know, once you live in Texas, you pretty much want to return to Texas for the most part. This is how we, Texas, uh, like to. Return home and jobs actually were more plentiful here back in the late nineties and two thousands. And the pay was very good. Um, so I came back and joined, uh, yeah, you know, it was a contract management group at the time it was Mcare care, which later became envision. And through that, I was able to become a medical director for a couple of sites in the Houston area. And then at one point I was able to, uh, get our own contract that was awarded to us by the hospital with some other doctors. And so from that, um, part of my career, I was medical director for our group, but we also owned the group. So I got to see the backhand, um, how, the, how the billings worked and just essentially the, the runnings of a day-to-day operation. And so that kind of you know, sprung me into where I'm at currently. Um, after that contract, you know, it was lost to back to MCARE. I went with some other uh, hospitals to work and become medical director at those hospitals. And then just through my career, just been doing different roles uh, in the hospital. At one point, I was chief of staff, as elected by the peers of the hospital, which was a, my, my greatest honor, I think, of my career, because it wasn't just my ER colleagues. It was the entire hospital medical staff that voted me in that. And then worked on various you know, trauma committees and STEMI committees and stroke committees, And then just kind of learn how to, uh, you know, manage in the hospital and the inner workings of the hospital and how things work between the C-suite and through the medical staff. And I've seen, you know, the good through the early, you know, 2000s. And now I'm seeing the bad about, you know, staffing cuts and, you know, with COVID hit and how just the supply chains were rocked and just how things changed. And now it's just basically about the bottom line and money. And that's kind of uh, one thing that kind of pushed me to doing more locums is because I just saw how everything's becoming micromanaged in the hospital and the emergency department. It's all about the metrics and how many patients you have to see per hour and how fast you can get them out. And things would always conflict as far as, you know, seeing patients faster versus discharging them and then the critical patients would come in. So it's it's to a point where it's not sustainable in the current model for most hospitals. and then they would bring in, you know, more nurse practitioners or physician assistants to to help you out, but you can't oversee them as well in the department because you're so busy with your own patients. And every every day there's always some new uh, form to fill out or some new checklist or something you got to think about. So that way, you don't you know upset the, the cardiologist or the orthopedist or anybody. So it, it's really becoming a very difficult place to work and we're starting to see that in the emergency medicine field that a lot of physicians are leaving. You know, I'm in my mid fifties and, you know, a lot of us are trying to find other avenues of employment or even getting out altogether.
0: So you've been around the block for the last 20 years. I have. Talk to me about your experiences so far over the last 20 years, working with these physician built private management companies that now most of them are owned by private equity. What have you seen uh, more so with the the establishment of the private equity and what have been the goods and bads for patient care?
1: Uh, From a, I can just tell you exactly what happened to us with uh, MCARE and Envision. So we were doing very well, I thought, in our program. And when mcare slash Envision decided to sell off to private equity, they essentially shut off the contracts that weren't as profitable, and that included one that I worked at as well. Um, so we had to switch to a different contract management group. But when that happens, so now private equities come in and they're essentially almost not, not calling the shots in a sense, but they are. they'll they'll drop the staffing down where you have to work you know a little slightly harder, uh, really pushing the metrics that we have to be seeing because they don't want to lose the contract. You know, they're making sure the hospitals are on board with this. And there's really no, um, you know, we, we don't really have any resolution. If one of the doctors is not uh, doing what they need to be done, they'll let us go. You know, they'll say, you're not needed anymore. Um, we're basically a warm body. And, you know, as as a physician, as the one of the highest educated, you know, professions in the world, we're treated no different than somebody who works at McDonald's some days. Um, it really is sad. And. I hate to see that, and I think it's going to continue to get worse. And that's why a lot of us who work at these contract groups um, are not as happy there. Um, you go to a Democratic group, and yeah, they have their problems as well. You know, maybe some of the there's some buy-in issues, um, there's some staffing issues because they're not as big as well-known, but they may have a better you know work-life balance because they're not being pushed so hard. Um, and but that's highly variable across the nation. What I'm doing now is I'm working actually Locums for uh, a division of uh M carrying division called um uh, what's it called nowadays um Echo is what it's called, I think um, is the name no, I think
2: Echo is with sound. No,
1: Echo's with sound. That's Envoy, Envoy, sorry. They're all E's now. So it's with Envoy. And so I go to work at a freestanding ER and I work my six or seven shifts and I work and make an hourly rate. And I do uphold the metrics. I try to see patients as fast as I can, but I'm trying to do uh, a a, the best job that I can seeing patients. And when I do that, I feel, you know, more relaxed because I'm not being pressured as much. And so that's what I feel at my stage in my career.
0: So explain to me this. Why is it that a company like an Envision would also own their own locums company? And why would they work with an employed physician? And why would they work with these locums companies or their own locums company? I, it just confuses me. Explain it to me.
1: So there are many locums companies out there. And I think that's kind of one of the backbones of this group is that these locums companies will go to hospitals and they'll say, okay, for an ER physician, we're going to charge you, we'll say $400, whatever. Um, And then they have to pass that money on to somebody. So I usually pass it on to the uh, management groups who have to actually reimburse that. So they have to pay a higher rate to get that person in. And then that management or the, Locum's company gets a cut of that, say a hundred bucks or 50 bucks an hour. And then the salaries for us roughly stay the same. So what Envision and Sound and other ones have done, they've had their own internal Locum's company. So they don't have to pay that other company to to hire us on basically. Um, So in a sense, they're not having to shell out that extra hundred dollars an hour to somebody else.
0: Why do you think that they have to have or label two different entities?
1: Um, I think, uh, well, part of it is, you know, business structure, um, part two is, so they just, they don't see, seem to be appeared to be in vision or team health or sound that way. It doesn't Oh, it's a whole different group called envoy. Oh yeah. That's just the locums group. You know? So it sounds like every other locums group that's out there, whether be or somebody else.
2: Yeah,
0: definitely.
1: So
2: George, you painted a very bleak picture for emergency medicine <laughs> and, you know, last year's residency match, uh, a lot of, uh, and I think i have frozen here. Yeah, you're um, from, but we can hear. Okay, um, most of the res- med students did not pick emergency medicine, whereas previously it was like a very highly sought after mm-hmm. uh, specialty. Um, how do you think that's going to go? You said that things are going to get worse.
1: Well, so part two of this whole emergency medicine kind of environment nowadays is the hospitals, namely like HCA. Um, they've created their own residency programs. And in doing so, they're trying to, I guess, get more cheaper labor out of the residents, and also they get money reimbursed from the government. So um, you'll see a residency program in the, say in the Houston area, I know of at least, well, there's two that I know of that are affiliated with community hospitals. And you think, well, that's not a bad thing, get more residents involved. Well, what it's doing then is for ER, all we basically can only work at hospitals, You know, freestandings are, are hospitals. We can't go open our own private practice like an orthopedist can or cardiologist can. So if they flood the market with new graduates, older doctors you know, like me, I say I'm older, but 50s or 60s can get shoved out and they're gonna bring in the residents at cheaper rates. And basically it's a supply and demand issue. Um, so now a lot of emergency medicine residents are afraid of the, I'm um, oh, sorry, future medical students are afraid of the future, seeing what's going to happen, say, what, five years down the road that there's going to be too many graduates, so they're looking at other specialties. I think this happened with anesthesia years ago, um, and it's going to happen with us, I think, more and more. And a lot of the the residencies that didn't fill were the community hospitals that were affiliated with HCA.
0: Great. Now, I think that over the last few years, you've taken a part in PPP. Can you talk to the audience about the PPP and things that you are striving for to improve in medicine?
1: Okay. So PPP started off um, a few years ago. This is how I met Corinne at a, at a conference that we put together. Um, uh, physicians protecting patients is basically the, the nomenclature for it, but essentially it was for physicians to start taking, um, I have to use the word control, but essentially taking back what's being lost in medicine. A lot of people in medicine are trying to do what's called practice uh, scope creep, where say like the pharmacists are trying to do more things. Uh, they want to run tests and treat, you know, uh, using uh, prescriptions over the counter I'm not over the counter, uh, that they can treat or like testing over the counter. Um, nurse practitioners are trying to become independent practitioners, same as for physician assistants, see some issues with chiropractors. So, all of these non physician entities are trying to practice medicine. And you'll hear the same arguments oh, well, this is just a monopoly and blah, blah, blah. But we're all educated. We've done this for years. We've seen the highest level of education. And somebody who comes out with barely, you know, 1% to 2% of our education trying to treat patients the same way we do and mistakes are being made left and right. And so that's part of what this advocacy group is, is trying to make sure there's transparency and that we can protect patients because patients don't know. Um, a lot of these other individuals, they're all, everybody will wear a white coat. Um, they won't come in and say that they're a physician, they're a provider now. So everybody is confusing the roles. So you don't really know who you're seeing if you're a patient sometimes, and you may not even have a choice. And that's, I think where we're heading as a society as well, where patients aren't going to have a choice in who's leading them as far as their medical care. And a lot of the people coming out as far as like, say nurse practitioners just don't have the education to even identify simple things and patients present with uh, very odd presentations of some of the common diseases. And if they miss that, that could be uh, deadly.
0: I definitely hear you. Over the last 20 years, talk to me about your passions or your priorities in medicine, how they've changed with medicine. You spoke about how we have PAs and NPs creeping into emergency medicine. How have you changed your ways to adapt to what healthcare has become?
1: So what I'm trying to do is i want to educate people is um, and and how you need to take control of your own health care um, and from emergency standpoint you know when they come to see me in the er i get maybe 5 10 minutes with them but i want to try to make uh, an impression upon those patients that i'm going to give them the best care that i can at the time and if i don't know it i want to get them to the right patient or right um, person who can do that um, and, you know, it may be fine where they have a nurse practitioner follows up on chronic diseases. Um, a PA can do that as well, too. But I think there needs to be f- some physician oversight just to kind of make sure we have that checks and balances. Um, you wouldn't expect like a flight attendant to watch a course and then learn how to fly a plane, even though they've been on a plane for 20 plus years. You can't do it. It's the same thing for medicine. Yes, there is a lot of common things to treat, but I've seen numerous times where there's, even the simple things get missed. And so part of me and my passion now, I, I can do that because before, if you're a medical director or you work for these big groups, you can't say anything because they'll fire you. And that's true. And they will come out and say, Well, you're saying these things about, you know, nurse practitioners or PAs or anything. Hospital will say cut you loose. The group will say cut you loose. Now as locums, you know, I don't have to worry about that. I am um, will they not hire me there? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But there's other options that I can do as well, too.
0: I think there's certainly a trend of physicians going towards locums or direct contracting, becoming independent contractors and developing flexibility rather than being owned by a facility or healthcare system. So I totally get that. I know that you did or recently graduated from an executive MBA program during COVID. Tell me about that experience. And did you take much from it?
1: So I did. So what's interesting about doing uh, an MBA? I did it during COVID, so it was basically online. And people say, "Well, you're doing online courses like the nurse practitioners." Well, it's it's different. I'm learning about statistics and uh, marketing, and uh, we had to do presentations in Zoom courses. So it was a whole lot different than laying hands on a patient and trying to identify things. Um, I learned a lot because I. When I was medical director for our own group I learned about profits and loss and things and just how to run a business you know on paper we you know it's it's not that difficult you just have to follow the money in money out but by doing an MBA I could get more of the uh, ins and outs of how do you number one manage it because we had to do this one of our projects is how do you start up a practice or a business actually I think it was on a, a whiskey farm we had to create how do you distribute whiskey, so you, you had to work on you know buying the mills. You had to work on promoting it. So we had that in a group, and so it's kind of interesting to to see that because as emergency medicine we don't see that. We just see patients go in and out. We don't do billing like you know orthopedist or or cardiolo- cardiologist or those kind of private groups, whereas they have to deal with insurance. We just go to work and somebody else handles that for us, the coders. But in doing that MBA, I could kind of get an idea of the business aspect and the marketing aspect, and how to interact with not just uh, you know one type of uh, individual. You had to interact with, you know, the, you have the, the the work the workers, and you had to interact also with say the management. So it kind of really helped my role as a medical director. Now I'm seeing things from a whole different perspective, as you know, like supply chain. Um, how to make sure you have an, enough uh, you know, workers on hand, how many workers you need. So I could see all those numbers. So I think it made me as a better director because now I can manage those people in a different light.
2: Hmm. I don't know that.
1: Alexa came on.
2: <laughs>
0: Definitely. I, I hmm. want to talk to you about improved uh, improved work-life balance. How have you been able to achieve this over the last 20 years? And what are you doing now in particular that others can learn from to achieve like work-life balance?
1: Well, emergency medicine, I think we talked about this before, kind of lends itself to that because when you're on, you're on. When you're off, you're off. And that's easy. So we work, you know, mainly 10 to 14 shifts a month. And so it's easier to have a better work-life balance as a ER physician. As a medical director, I felt like I was always on, you know, because somebody could call me at seven at night or the weekend, follow emails, got to do this meeting, do that. So it got to be pretty tough. And you know, I take frequent trips with my wife. And even then you have to respond to things and uh, you just kind of hate not knowing what's going on with your own department. Once I'm not doing that anymore, we can travel all the time. We just got back from a cruise last week. Um, Unfortunately, I had to bring my work. This is a sad story. I had to do CPR on a beach in Honduras. I mean, this is crazy. This guy collapsed in the water. So here I am on vacation doing my work, but you know, it's, um, it's unfortunate. That's just life that can happen. But we're just trying to do that uh, live life as best we can now. Um,
0: That's fantastic. I hope you saved his life. Or at least mm-hmm. the family appreciated it. Yeah, I, I want to know what you would recommend to youngsters. So people in my generation, 30 young 40s, who are maybe headed towards burnout, or maybe already burned out. What advice do you have for us, knowing what you've done over the last 20 years and how we can get to an improved work-life balance and minimize our burnout?
1: So there's varying degrees of burnout. It just depends on where you are, stage of life. If you're married, kids, post kids, um, first thing is debt and make sure that your debt is minimal. I mean, that's the first thing I look at, you know, because when we got out, our debt wasn't as much. 20 years ago. Um, and so I was able to pay that off in about three or four years um, working pretty hard. And so I didn't have that med school debt over, over my head. Like a lot of people do nowadays, it can be what, three, $400,000, very daunting. Um, so you want to try to get a hold of that as quickly as you can. Um, I think that can contribute to burnout because you feel just under the weight of all this uh, debt um as you and when you get into your 30s and 40s with kids then change then priorities change you know you have to buy a house buy cars pay for college those kind of things and so life planning is really i think the key for burnout um if you can plan a life ahead of time where when you get to my stage you're not worried about all that as much now yes i still gotta pay the bills still want to travel that's why i'm still working but i don't have to worry about you know car payments, house payments, you know, got a good mortgage, cars are paid off, uh, paid for kids school earlier. We did some uh, what's called the Texas Tomorrow Fund where prepaid tuition. We did uh, 529 plans. All those things kind of helped you for the future. And so once you get to my stage, then pick and choose what you can do. You know, that way you're not under the gun to try to really force yourself to work so much. Um, I've cut back to about, you know, six shifts the last few months. I might pick up some more shifts in the Towards the summer, just because I can, um, help pay for some more trips in the in the fall. But uh, short of that, I mean, it's it's try to figure out what you can do to make your life easier. Um, and if you're under the gun for, I, I see lots of stories of people that are just under the gun for having to, you know, pay for all these debts and things, and they buy a big house and two cars, and they're just being crushed. And that needs to kind of stop, unfortunately.
2: So, George, um, a lot of young physicians feel like they're stuck in bad job situations and they feel like they can't move, they can't find another option and they remain kind of miserable and uh, things don't change, they get worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would you say to them? Uh, I mean, it's called the golden handcuffs because it provides you benefits and young families, you know, they need that or they don't feel they have another option.
1: Yeah, that's tough because a lot of people want to live near family, especially with kids and they need help with the kids. And I get it, you know, you kind of feel handcuffed to that. But there are so many options out there right now. I mean, people think of locums and traveling. You know, I I did, uh, I traveled from my main ER job about an hour and a half. I'd stay in a hotel, even this was before locums. Now what's funny is I'm doing locums, but I stay at home. It's kind of funny. I'm actually closer to home doing locums. Um, But there are plenty of, for like for ER right now, there's still plenty of jobs, I, I get inundated every day for jobs, you know, and it may not be the best place. Um, and you may have to suck it up for some time. Um, But there's options out there. I mean, you have to really dig into it and ask for help. You know, that's one good thing this group is, is trying to, you know, give help, because a lot of us can guide young physicians where they need to be, you know, part of, one of my things as an MBA I wanted to do was create some kind of company for young physicians to try to help them with, you know, 401k and taxes and things. I just, I haven't pulled that together yet. And I just don't know if I ever will. There's an idea I had is how can we help physicians? Because it is tough. I mean, when you get out with all of this debt and working and you're just tied to the corporate world, I mean, there's, we got to find ways to help us. I mean, physician suicides are at higher rates, um, depression, all of that. So we need to really help protect our own. And I think a group like this will help mentoring people, you know, just kind of asking questions and answering questions. And, you know, if, if anybody can help get somebody like just a job contact somewhere else. I mean, I think luckily for that, you know, Facebook's around for now, everybody can kind of reach out to other States and cities and find jobs. I mean, there are other avenues. I know people feel trapped and you may feel that way, but it's funny because once I left this job, you actually feel relieved in a sense. And that's, that's kind of the ironic thing.
0: I I love what you said about debt and getting your finances in order. I think that's the number one thing. And I have a feeling, I already know the answer to this question. (laughs) What is the biggest risk that physicians can take to achieve happiness or to achieve a good work-life balance? in the current state of healthcare? What is that biggest risk physicians can take that you'd recommend they take to get back some happiness?
1: Um, I think don't be afraid to change jobs. I mean, they always tell you, I tell my son, your first job is not your last job and find something that makes you, I say happy, but happier. I mean, nobody wants to go to work and be happy, but I mean, some people do. I mean, some people love going to work. You know, I, I actually like going to where I work now, the freestandings. Yeah, it's a hassle some days, you know, but I mean, the patients I see, I can spend time with them and it's, I'm not as stressed and it's nice and there's plenty of opportunities out there. Now it may be harder to find next to your house, but you just have to take the risk and see, and it may not happen over the first you know few months, but something will come along and you just got to keep looking and trying and you know, reach out to other people for, you know, contacts. There's lots of groups on Facebook that have opportunities for jobs. Um, talk about taking a risk. I um, worked at LifeBounce last year. I went on a ski trip with some doctors from Facebook. I didn't know any of them. And my wife was like, why are you doing this? I said, because you don't want to ski anymore. So I had to go skiing with somebody else. So I went with these guys, had a blast, did it again this year. That was a risk and it worked.
0: Fantastic. We are getting close to finishing this up. And so I have a series of questions. What concerns you most about the future of medicine?
1: I think just the uh, corporization and the government control and reimbursements. Um, I, just, I just see it coming to a breaking point. And I thought it happened by now, but at some point it's going to be where something has to give, something has to like, not be sustainable and it's going to be you're going to see reimbursements cut to positions to the point where they won't want to work and then when that happens i'm afraid they're going to pull in the nurse practitioners and pas to take our role but then they want parity of pay so there's no savings there um it's just i think there's just an insurance is just taking too much money from it and not reimbursing and just making it harder and harder for us and hospitals too i agree i mean hospitals are getting under the gun too their profit margins are down. Um, it's just hard all the way around. You know, nurses want to be paid more, and they deserve to be paid more. So it cuts into the hospital's budgets as well. It it's too many, too many moving parts. And it's something's gotta give and something's gonna happen where it's gonna change dramatically at some point.
0: Yeah, as Corinne and I stated in an article recently, we might be headed towards an iceberg. Mm-hmm. Come- the healthcare industry to the collision
1: of the I Titanic. I agree. Something's something's going to fall apart, and it's going to be there'll be some bad consequences, and you know you're going to have maybe patients fall through the crack and die, or something is going to happen. Something like that will happen. Yeah.
2: yeah so it it like... it sorry. Okay. Uh, I was just saying a lot of physicians are retiring, leaving medicine early. Number one. Number two. Some of them are going into things like direct primary care. Which Mm -hmm. I think is great. I know it's not so much an option for emergency medicine docs, but, and then there are others that have side gigs that evolve into, you know, more full time. So we're seeing kind of an exodus from medicine, um, which I think is only going to add to the Mm -hmm. shortage. Yes. Uh, Would you agree?
1: I I agree 100%. It is. Uh, I know of many ER physicians getting out and doing other things. Um, You know, before COVID, there was really any, at my, Hospital, it was hard to get a shift to work. And now there's shifts open all the time.
0: Yeah, definitely. I know that you spoke about vacations, taking vacations and going skiing. What other <laughs> passions do you have now that you have more time off and you're relaxing more?
1: So, I, being in my 50s, I try to exercise, try to do it daily as well, you know, weightlifting and some cardio, try to stay healthy. Because unfortunately, when you get older, metabolism slows down <laughs> and you have to kind of watch what you eat and just you have to take care of yourself. Cause if you don't do that, it's just going to be harder to do anything else. Um, you know, I found if, if I work shifts and I don't eat right, you know, I feel miserable and I just don't want to do the right thing as well. So we have to take care of our bodies as well too. Um, other passions traveling, like I said, with before, you know, going different things with you know either just the wife or with other couples or friends, um, just trying to do non-work activities. Um, when I go on vacation, I'll read some, you know, kind of sp- spy murder mystery books. You know, those are fun to read as well. Um, next month, going with a- another couple to a music festival in Florida, Fort Lauderdale, three days to watch, um, you know, different country acts play. So just just have fun.
0: Awesome. I'll finish it up by a series of three questions. The okay. first one is which day of the week do you enjoy having off the most?
1: I like Thursdays. Why is that? I've always had Thursdays off for like an admin day. And it just seems like that it's, it's almost the weekend. People are kind of more happy. Um, you can get in and get other appointments done. Um, you know, doctor's appointments are, seem like they're easier to get into as opposed to like a Monday or Tuesday. Um, and it just seems like that it's like an early start to the weekend It just kind of i've gotten through monday tuesday wednesday now thursday i'm off
0: awesome what's your favorite book or what book would you recommend others read
1: uh you know it's interesting i've read the jack reacher series um, by lee child and that's a fun one to read um you know it's it's not the rom-com that a lot the women will read like I see my wife and I share a a kindle library so hers will pop up and I see all these beats romance novels and things but yeah I I like those kind of not just kind of mystery or spy espionage those are my fun things to read
0: great and last question internationally or domestically which is your favorite place to travel to
1: Oh, um, I'm going to say international because we recently did a trip to Greece that was phenomenal. Um, We like uh, getting over to different uh, cities, exploring different cultures, different foods. It's, you know, less expensive. Um, You can get some really good, you know, food at half the price you get here. Um, And just something different I've never experienced. You know, that's part of getting out and enjoying life, you know, getting away from America. Um, we have a trip to Belize this summer with some other friends that we travel with. We actually met a uh, family on a cruise out of Barcelona about ten years ago on a Disney cruise. And we've kept up with them. They live in the Houston area, and we just we just met them on the cruise. and we travel with them. We go to dinner with them, we go see musicals with them. And it's just fun. It's just that's our traveling group that we just hang out with, and our kids are all about the same age, and they got to become really good friends. and you know, that's the risk. You do something like that and look what happens.
0: Well, that's great, George. Thanks so much for your time today. I Mm -hmm. I just enjoy talking to you. I enjoy listening to someone that's been through it for the last 20 years and now really is is fighting for physicians, understands where the potentially the future of healthcare may be going. Uh, It's just fun to listen to you. So thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank yeah, I appreciate you. it. So thanks. So parting story. This is another funny story. So when I went to medical school to our first reunion at five years, you know, there's a lot of us at the five-year table and we're, we're looking at everybody around and then you see the guys at the 25 table and there's like 10 of them I'm like, damn, they're old. Well, I'm there now at the 25 table. So
0: <laughs> you're also missing some hair that also yeah, that's, that's been
1: forever, man. That's kids, <laughs> kids made it happen. No, it's, just, uh, it's life and, uh, you know, I just have to go with it. And I appreciate you having me on to try to help, you know, lead some other people and get information. I feel like I have, a, you know, experience behind me and that can really just help anybody. I can, I, I'm there to offer.
0: What a terrific source you are for people. So thanks so much.
1: And it was Thank great. You. Having Thank you guys. I appreciate it.